It's been a few episodes now, but for those listening for the first time, I have my first sponsor, and I could not think of a better one than Mempool.space, a fantastic Bitcoin block explorer. Mempool space is becoming much more than your traditional block explorer. It is becoming a multi-layer explorer from layer zero mempool, layer one blockchain, layer twos like Lightning and Liquid, and a lot more. We're still using Wiz's mempool here at the park, but like most things in my life, I'm moving towards free and open source software. And you get that with this Bitcoin block explorer. So you do not need to trust Wiz's mempool, i.e. mempool.space. You can easily host it yourself. More to come on this front at the park in 2023, especially in May of 2023, when we host basically Mempool Month here at the park. So give it a shot yourself at mempool.space. This is kind of like maybe one of my contrarian takes. I I think there's so much innovation left to be done on layer one Bitcoin, and that's why I'm putting my focus and attention at that layer. And I think Miniscript is kind of a very conclusive thesis of some part of that has to be right because we're not using layer one to the full potential that we can at the moment. And for anyone who's working on any other project in Bitcoin on a higher layer, I I would encourage to start thinking about the fact that if we extend the programmability and utility of layer one, it's exponentially going to make layers two and three and so on stronger. Welcome to the Builders in Bitcoin podcast, a podcast about the people who bring Bitcoin to life. I'm your host, Rod, and I go by the handle BitKite on Twitter. My guest this week is Rob Hamilton, co-founder and CEO of AnchorWatch, a company offering game-changing insurance and risk management products to help Bitcoiners protect their coins while holding their own keys. In this episode, we discuss and dig into the importance of de-risking and stimulating economic activity, where the insurance industry is today, what Miniscript is and how AnchorWatch is using it, and a lot more. I really enjoyed my conversation with Rob, and I hope you will too. So let's just jump right into it. Rob Hamilton, how the heck are you? Doing great, Rod. How are you? Good, good. Am I coming in okay, buddy? Loud and clear. Perfect. Uh, First off, I can't wait to see you here in Nashville, Tennessee, hopefully in the near future. But uh, we're not here to talk about Nashville or the South. We're here to talk about your amazing tweet thread and um, what you're what you've been working on so passionately behind the scenes that you just recently announced. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. Awesome, awesome. I, I actually, you know, jumped the gun even on my own podcast. Um, I I realized that you were when we were chatting, you were a poker player, right? Was that your background? Yeah. So it wasn't a full time living. Uh, I went to school and I got a degree in math and economics, and I always was very interested in game theory and probability and stats, which complemented very well with learning how to play poker. So I was never a full-time grinder, but you know, I was I would say a, a, a strong hobbyist that you know that had regular caches and would I would say a profitable player for sure. Yeah, uh, I think those are few and far between, to be honest with you. Um, and. Believe it or not, I put myself in that category as well. I actually uh, had to play uh, online poker, six-handed or sorry, six-handed games, four, five, four, six tables each, um, and just grinded my way through paying for graduate school. Um, but this is not about me. <laughs> this is about, uh, and I, I do think that is a, like a really good segue into uh, kind of your 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 mentality and your discipline. Um, around poker playing, but also how the heck does someone like you 
get into the world of insurance, which to me seems pretty arcane and I'm not going to be honest, uh, somewhat dull. I, I I love that question because I could not disagree more. Uh, <laughs> poker and, and, and gambling in general, it's a game of, of taking risks, right? And making probabilistic bets. Mm-hmm. That's the world of insurance at the end of the day. You have a certain basket of risk, whether that's owning a home, driving a car, what have you, maybe even holding Bitcoin. And the idea is that you're trying to be able to remove your you're selling your risk. When you buy an insurance policy, you're selling the risk and letting someone else hold that risk for you, right? In exchange for that, you pay them to take the risk. And it's an economic trade. It's an activity like that. And I view it very much in a similar way of poker, where you're trying to understand edges and trying to understand um, mispricing in markets and being able to kind of uh, bring better services to light. So I think insurance is, it it gets a very, uh, the reputation obviously is being very boring and dull. Uh, It's, it's where a lot of innovation happens is, is being able to de-risk things is how you actually enable economic activity and growth is when you're able to remove risk, people are more able to freely interact with each other in society. And it's a very powerful compounding effect that can, you know, have a lot of great upside for everyone. Yeah. So you, you just said that where a lot of innovation happens. Can you expand on that? Well, yeah. So th- my favorite story I like to talk about this is that um, the United States of America was built on insurance. Um, Lloyd's of London, which uh, people who in insurance know about is this large insurance syndicate and company in London. Think of it like the New York Stock Exchange, but instead of trading securities, you're trading weird types of risk, right? Uh, During the the 1700s and 1600s, you would have ship explorers that would go looking out for spices and new trade routes and whatnot. And it was very dangerous. You had wooden ships with a lack of sophisticated technology. And uh, it was it was, a lot, it was very uh, hard to know reliably or you could be able to return with your crew and your cargo, right? The spoils of the adventure. And insurance, uh, with Lloyd's of London specifically, the coffee house came in where ship owners, captains would be underwriters. So they actually would write their signature underneath their cargo, their destination, what they're doing, and they would pay uh, Lloyd's a percent of that, right? And in the event that the shipwrecked or went missing, Lloyd's would pay out and make the underwriter or the delegated person whole. Hmm. And this is what allowed all of the adventures and like the aggressive expansion to discovering and, and building America was once we were able to de-risk uh, the economic activity of exploring, you had this huge boom that, you know, turned into the birth of our country. Right. And I, that's why I think that like, once you start like looking past the actuarial tables and like the stats and the color numbers, like there is a really beautiful element too of just, it, it's a great way. I'd like to view it as like how insurance does change how we all interact with each other in ways that we never really fully understand unless we're looking for it. Yeah. That's a great way to frame it. Um, because I wasn't really thinking about it like that, about the de-risking the economic activity of actually getting on a freaking wooden boat and saying, Hey, you're going to go sail that way (laughs) and, uh, good luck. Right. Um, so before we get into what you've been building, I I am actually curious because the insurance world today, to me, when I use the word arcane and dull, it's like, I have life insurance. I have freaking, I have to have car insurance. I have to have, um, you know, homeowners insurance or rental insurance and all these different things that just seems like it's like soul sucking costs out of me. Um, that, you know what I will say one day you may have to use it and then you're like thankful that you have it, Mm -hmm. but maybe can you explain where we are today? Uh, the, or can you explain the insurance industry today? 
Yeah, so I'd like the 30,000-foot view. Um, I mean, my personal bias is I'm, I would lean more as a libertarian, and I would say that the things that you're talking about are what are called admitted lines. These are heavily regulated, standardized products like life insurance, health insurance, car insurance, homeowner's insurance, right? These are very um, almost cookie-cutter light. Like, there's very strict guidances and kind of uh, ways you can offer that kind of insurance, right? Because they've been around for a very long time. The risks are generally well understood, and because of that, it's uh, it, also for consumer protection, there's a lot of, you know, kind of guardrails to speak around it. The kind of Wild West side of insurance is what's called a surplus, excess and surplus line. These are new and novel forms of products and insurance, things that don't have like large pools of data or they are very small risks. Think like if you're, uh, I'm thinking right now, if you're Mandrick flying around uh, with his private <laughs> pilot license, like you need to have a special kind of insurance to be able to fly that plane. And that's not something you go to like Geico to get my private plane insurance, right? So that's where I'm operating in is in this kind of less um, established form of insurance of the excess and surplus lines that are, you know, that general frontier of all of the new things going on. And that, that it kind of ties well into the stuff we're, I'm working on with Bitcoin is that uh, the insurance industry, when it looks at Bitcoin today, they treat it like um, the, the two models are one, it's gold in a vault, mm-hmm. right? It sits there, you keep it um, and some, you know, actual insurance policies and custodians do it this way. They put them in bank vaults and then they just don't let anyone inside. And, uh, you know, that's an approach. Uh, and then another approach would be using things called MPCs, multi-party computing. This is typically also popular with being able to, uh, for many other cryptocurrencies at large, because uh, Bitcoin natively supports like multi-sig, which I'll get to in a moment. Uh, with MPCs though, you basically take shards of a single private key and you scatter them all over the place. And the trade-off with that is that to actually be able to produce a signature, let's say I'm withdrawing from a custodian, they need to do many rounds of computation um, from these different computers. But since you have to do lots of rounds of computing, it always has to be connected to the internet, and you have to use these things called HSMs, uh, hardware um, security modules, that are specialized just for this one economic activity of sharding private keys and signing. And because of that, there's a huge misprice in in the market, there's a, there's a big opportunity in that Bitcoin can do better than both of those things, right? You don't totally. have to keep all of your keys in one place. You don't have to shard a single private key and put it all over the place. Like you're introducing cyber risks, you're introducing centralized points of failure if your one bank vault has a problem. And Bitcoin's much more robust than that. And we're able to do better than that. And that's kind of, I see as the larger opportunity of how we can transform uh, insurance and the little corner I play in when it involves Bitcoin. I, I freaking love that. And I'm going to go deep into this uh, section, but you mentioned, and by the way, I love podcast guests that actually teach me something new, uh, which is all the time. Um, the admitted lines versus the excess and surplus lines. I think that's, uh, if I got that right. Yeah. Um, the excess and surplus lines. So are the, uh, quick tangent. So is this the world now that uh, for Bitcoin mining, these new insurance providers are playing in uh, as well? That's really interesting. Yeah, so I've had a couple question, uh, a couple conversations with players that are operating with the Bitcoin mining um, property insurance space. I can't speak to specifics because I, one, I'm not a commercial Bitcoin miner. I haven't looked at those policies or seen those pitch decks. But I would be so bold to assume that they're probably insuring it closer to like a generic data center, right? Yeah. Um, where you already have property insurance for data centers, and that's not really like a new and novel thing. 
I that's a great question though that I should understand the exact mechanics of how those policies are being offered. Got it. Uh, speaking as a Bitcoin miner, I'm I'm very interested uh, to learn more on this front. That's for sure. Yeah. So the you're you're playing in this world and. Um, going from the admitted lines of like the regular insurance of like life insurance, car insurance, and so on. And then uh, now playing in this excess and surplus lines. So I guess why now out of curiosity? So it, it's interesting that you asked that. Uh, the company um, Anchor Watch, uh, which to kind of give a nod, the name is actually uh, by uh, American HODL was helping me kind of come up with the naming for it. And the, re- the name Anchor Watch it's an old nautical term. Uh-huh. It refers to the crew of sailors who watch the ship at night while you're at anchor. And that was our idea of, well, you want someone watching over you, making sure you're safe, you know, with your most important thing, your Bitcoin, your money, right? And the timing of this, uh, to go a little bit into just my background, was I was previously a consultant and data scientist at IBM, uh, did a lot of amazing, fun, great work there. And, uh, I was working very hard. I decided to step away from that to spend time with my family. I had two young kids and I wanted to spend, you know, a little bit of time with them, uh, you know, while, while they're that age. And after a year, I started getting the itch thinking I wanted to start getting back into, you know, working and doing something. And I've been in Bitcoin since 2013. Uh, as a brief tangent, I went to the New York City Socratic Bit Devs in 2013. And that's what Orange Pill made. Yeah. I walked in the room, I realized I was the dumbest person in that room. There were all these wizards working on really hard problems. And it's what inspired me to learn how to program and kind of really fall in love with Bitcoin. And so I was thinking that I was already pretty well knowledgeable in Bitcoin. I'm a programmer. I can kind of start cobbling things together and trying to think like, oh, let me do a round of applications. And I had many interviews at a lot of Bitcoin companies, even got some job offers. and none of them seemed fully fulfilling to me. They all kind of seemed like they were great opportunities, but they, I felt like I wasn't using my full potential. And that's when the conversation one night on Clubhouse, funny enough, came up of starting a um, a product of doing insurance for Bitcoin. And what came out of that very much so was a, uh, a very wild roller coaster that I'm still strapped into. And we've been incorporated since March. The initial idea was early February. And I've been buckled in ever since. I'll I'll stop there and let you kind of poke in a bit. No, I, I freaking love that story. And I could just hear your your passion exudes for what you've been like heads down uh building. Um and I think we were sharing a cab uh maybe at the conference yes. or and you were just it was like, to go to beefsteak. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um you're you're kind of giving me the the hint at what you have been working on and so on. And I'm like, man keep crushing it because it's way above my pay grade at the moment. Uh, but I re- do, uh, r- uh, vividly remember, uh, us talking about kids and spending time, uh, with our, our, our young kids, which is, uh, super, super important. So I, l- let me actually, uh, poke on a couple of things here. So, yeah. um, right now, uh, you, you put out this great tweet thread. And by the way, I love the name anchor watch, uh, with that story behind it. You gotta like definitely continue to tell that. Yeah. Um, and another th- quick tangent as well is, uh, bit devs is just such a magical, uh, not experience, but like from the New York bit devs, to SF bit devs. to now we have a Nash bit devs here. And I believe you go and send the, the Raleigh bit devs hosted by Evan. 
Uh, if you have a, a bit devs or don't have a bit devs in your uh, city or a meetup in your city, please consider uh, starting one. Um, that's my uh, PSA for, for for now. But I guess then tell me like where um, you, you learned to program. And then what specifically was the aha moment? And I'm kind of leading you towards this, uh, towards Miniscript. But like, mm-hmm. was it Miniscript that was the aha moment? Or was there another aha moment for you to say, all right, I got to start programming here? So um, for the insurance piece or programming, like in just in general, going to the New York City bit devs and seeing how hard a lot of brilliant people were working on a very hard problem of Bitcoin was in, intoxicating and inspiring to make me want to learn how to program. And this is back in 2013, right? So I we're love talking that. coming up on 10 years ago. Yeah. So this is coming up on 10 years ago. And um, I would throw that out there to I plus one and echo everything Rod just said. Go to your local BitDevs. I actually co-host the Raleigh BitDevs now with Evan. And we also have Jesse. I did a long uh, whiteboard session last night going into deep detail of the things I discussed in my Twitter thread. Let people kind of you know do it for themselves to use mini script vaults and play around with them. Uh, all to be said, though, uh, so I was inspired in, in teaching myself to learn how to program. And I actually, there were a couple jobs along the way after I started teaching myself how to program. I started automating myself, like a lot of the work I was doing and gaining time to the point where I just kind of kept leveling up and wanting to challenge myself more and more. And that was when I was a consultant and data scientist at IBM, a very grueling, long hours, hard work, very rewarding, great results. Uh, that was kind of the crucible that kind of really forged me as to I would consider myself a full-time developer, data scientist, uh, took the time off to be with the kids. But when it ties into AnchorWatch and the company, I already knew that like I could build prototypes very quickly, right? That was already something I was already thinking about. So I started designing out and scoping out uh, what would a full like, system look like to be able to offer insurance with Bitcoin. And uh, I was you know, going through, and one of my roadmap items, funny enough, was just thinking through and saying, oh yeah, I want to try and start doing some custom scripts. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to do custom scripts in Bitcoin to be able to have more granular control. Uh, I can go into a very deep rabbit hole on that. I'll keep it brief and just say, Bitcoin script is something that Satoshi invented before Bitcoin because it's in the launch candidate for the release candidate of Bitcoin. It is how every single Bitcoin transaction, um, when it is spent, is validated by all of the other nodes. And it's kind of, think of it as a locking script as to, what conditions am I allowed to spend this money? And the most straightforward ones everyone knows about is a single signature wallet and a multiple signature wallet, Mm -hmm. right? And those are the kind of very baseline templates, like a vanilla ice cream-esque. And that's how all Bitcoin works. And you can do more custom things, things people think of are like um, HTLCs and Lightning, hash time lock contracts, right? That's a custom Bitcoin script. Uh, There's a a long list of other things, but at a high level, the inspiration for many scripts specifically was realizing I needed to make custom Bitcoin scripts to better serve my business use case needs. I love that. And I, I would say, yeah, going the deep dive, definitely that's for you and Matt and Citadel Dispatch for sure. Uh, I'm going to do my best to keep it uh, more at the uh, the business or the the retail consumer level. Um, just sure. so for some, a pleb like me that has three kids, a fourth on the way, that's looking uh, to properly i mean there's a number of ways we can go but i guess so you had the bitcoin script right and then there was mini script and i was looking at your thread and i think peter woolley and a couple others were the ones that uh started the mini script uh yes yeah and so then you took this and so maybe can you explain what is mini script very happily so so 
as I mentioned, Bitcoin script, it's how every Bitcoin address kind of gets locked and says who gets to spend the money at that UTXO. Miniscript takes a certain set of, I view it as Lego bricks, right? And if you actually look at the Twitter thread, there's a visualization that comes from the Bitcoin dev kit team on their playground that actually shows you the Lego bricks on different kinds of things you can do spending conditions. Uh, there's three main tools. I'll call them like checks or like, like, a, like a security features. Uh, in Miniscript, mm -hmm. there are signatures, which we already all know about today. It's how your Bitcoin private keys, your 24 words. There is also a time lock, which is interesting because it can be either block height or it can be based on like time on the, like a clock on the wall, right? You can't do both, but you can do one or the other within a given Miniscript. Uh, and then the third one is called hash locks. And Without getting too technical, it's basically showing that you have a secret message that gets revealed at a later time. And those three building blocks are woven in uh, with things like AND operations as well as OR operations. And once you take these basic building block primitives, you can go very deep in detail. And as you mentioned, this project originally started in 2018 on the Blockstream. This is Peter Willa, Andrew Polstra, and Sanket. Um, have been working on it for three, four years. It's been slowly working its way towards integration with Bitcoin at large. Um, most importantly is they just added uh, output descriptor support, uh, watch-only support for it in Bitcoin Core this like two weeks ago. Hmm. So it's been sitting there. It's kind of in the wings, ready to be used. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like at a very high level. I would just say view it as Lego bricks where you can do much more complicated uh, and much more involved and nuanced signing procedures for your Bitcoin. And what I like to say is you could do some weird stuff, yeah. um, which I I'm curious to know from your, your point of view, because uh, and I'll zero in on time locks because I think that's so cool. It's like, a, it's something that happens at a specific block height or, um, or our fiat clock time. Yes. What's one weird example of something that somebody could possibly do? So we, we've already been joking around thinking of um, American HODL wants to lock a coin up till block height 6.15 million. Um, <laughs> that's just a, he just, he said he'll send it to his uh, grandchildren to buy a, a, his, his great, great, great descendants to buy planets with was his position <laughs> <laughs> on it. Uh, but on a serious note, I think there's some really cool things you can do here. They're not even weird. I think these are going to be standard normal practices in five years in Bitcoin. Going from single SIG to multi-SIG was a huge step function in being able to transform how we hold our money. Multi-SIG to Miniscript is going to be a 10x leap on top of that. And I say that pretty confidently, and I'll explain why. Think of something like a legacy multi-SIG today, right? You have, you have a, let's say you have a two of three multi-SIG. Each key is equal, right? So with each key being equal, I think as a sovereign individual, like that use case can make sense. I have a, I have a key at my house. I, maybe I have a key at a bank deposit vault. And maybe I keep a key with my lawyer on the other side of the country. That seems reasonable because they're really my relationship. But once you get to like corporate governance levels of large sums of money, you don't want to have um, the senior developer who has a key and the chief legal officer with a key to run off with the money and leave the CEO with no money, right? Like, so that instantly kind of calls out some interesting like problems. Miniscript addresses this, though, because you can have things like, you know, this key holder must sign to move the money. And when you think about that for a moment, that changes the relationship. While, while you have many signers that participate, you have a hierarchy of which signers are more important than others, mm -hmm. which very fundamentally changes how we view some of these custody models. Additionally, 
and this is the example I go through in the thread, you could have a, a three key situation where you have a customer, a lawyer, and a custodian, right? And you could have it such that the customer has to always sign. The lawyer and the custodian are unable to encode in the Bitcoin uh, script, unable to spend the money without the customer signature, right? You could do this also in a way where you can use the time locks for what I call like a sovereign veto. And what that is, is that you could actually set up a mini script vault so that if all of your signatories, all of the counterparties that are holding keys and distributing trust for you no longer choose to like work with you, they can't hold your money hostage. After the time lock passes, you can unilaterally remove all your money out of the mini script vault and no one can stop you because it's all encoded into the blockchain. Man, do you want to talk about game theory? Like you and whiteboarding out. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm even just thinking about all the different scenarios, right? Where the what if uh scenarios in terms of trusting. And by the way, that's you mentioned like larger corporations. One thing I get stuck on or prior to uh what you how you're explaining this was they're just individuals that are they have signing processes internally. Mm-hmm. God forbid you have a rogue employee or a compromised employee or an employee that was fired, right? Like, I mean, sure, there's there's uh, internal systems and processes documented on Notion or whatever Google Doc, um, but having it hard coded now into Bitcoin or Bitcoin, uh, yeah, hard coded into Bitcoin. If I got that yeah. correct, yeah is really, really interesting here. Now, I, I will say from a user perspective, and this is probably what AnchorWatch is making it um, easier to do, do you think it'll, I mean, in the near future, you mentioned five years, that'll be an application layer that'll be easy to use for plugs like myself? Give me six months. I'm working really hard on it. I'm working hard to accelerate the beautiful orange future for all of us. Uh, it takes time and resources, but uh, I think kind of why I showed in the Twitter thread is that the core building blocks are there. And very specifically to your point, I think user experience is an exceptional part of this user story. You need to make sure that there's an ability for a user to interact with this in a way where they are empowered to understand and have full knowledge and consent each step of the way so they know what they're participating in. And I, I love what you said before about kind of, you know, being able to encode some of these like governance rules on chain. The way I view it is it's a blend of using on-chain code and Miniscript as the contracting language for like the digital contract and blending that with off-chain governance, right? Because um, you still want to make sure that, you know, the the on-chain piece is one part of it, but you also can kind of have standardized procedures and how you interact with these Miniscript vaults in a way that kind of you know, I call it a belt and suspenders approach. You know, you, you, with belts and suspenders, you're not going to have any problems, you know, you know, keeping yourself like above water, right? So that's, <laughs> I think it's a really interesting way to think about that because like the, like, for, especially when you're dealing with larger corporate governance and institutions, you need to have like other processes that don't, aren't just explicitly code. And that's just the things that avoid foot guns and kind of ways that you could possibly put yourself offside with your own money. All right. Well, in six months, uh, it'll be June 14th. We're hosting here at the park, uh, funding and building Bitcoin businesses. Uh, we also do workshops here. So, at, uh, and we have a Nash Bit Devs and a number of other things. But going on that week, uh, I'd love to do a workshop just to put some sense of urgency and create a compelling event so that you can ship uh, what you just promised all of our listeners, which was a six month. <laughs> Uh, working product. I'm going to create a meetup event page and get about 100 to 200 plus people there uh, for it. 
I'm only not I love only one percent joking about this. Um, okay. But in all, um, but we're gonna make that happen. Let's do it. Awesome. All right. Well, like I'm. This is how you innovate: is you kind of just stick yourself out on the edge of the ledge, and you just you know you give it your all to make it all work. I'll have to let my uh, my co-founder and uh, chief operating officer uh, Becca know because she'll be very eager to hear that I've already put my foot in my mouth on my first podcast talking about the company. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We'll have Becca come out as well. Um, Absolutely. So one of the cool things about this is like you, especially in your tweet thread, you're actually demoing it. And this is what I love is like, rather than just talking about something and maybe even whiteboarding it, it's like, Hey, let me show you actually how this works. Mm -hmm. By the way, out of curiosity, why were you using any reason to, you're using a ledger over, let's say a Trezor or a cold card or a foundation device? Yeah. So this is an interesting, just uh, thing. The ledger team has put a lot of development work into Miniscript support already. So uh, while kind of signing an arbitrary transaction can kind of be worked around, ledgers put a lot of thought specifically into what does it mean to actually register and use a hardware wallet in Miniscript. So the, the direct answer is um, the two wallets that support Miniscript natively today are um, Ledger. And specifically with Ledger, they actually are not releasing the Miniscript version of the uh, app until end of the year or first week of January the latest. So you have to go compile the developer version of the app if you're going to use it within the next month. Uh, I was talking to Sal at Ledger. Huge shout out to him. He's been really supportive and helped me build through this. Uh, so the Ledger team supports this uh, as well as uh, Spectre DIY. Mm-hmm. So if you have a Spectre DIY that natively supports uh, Miniscript right now, I haven't touched the Spectre DIY Miniscript piece yet. Uh, and for the answer for the other devices, it's it's just a function of it has the the development work hasn't been put into like actually get it online yet. And and to be very honest, it's a tricky thing to deal with. And there's a couple of things. One, you're no longer signing something that's like a single sig or a basic multi-sig. You now have to understand if you're gonna like register, like here, deposit money into this Bitcoin address. You, the user, want to be very, very certain that you understand what you're about to put your money into. So you can see it in my uh, video. Uh, that on my Twitter thread, the ledger actually fully shows you the full miniscript policy to let you understand in as close to plain English as possible what you're about to commit to. And that includes all of the kind of spending conditions in miniscript form, as well as all of the extended public keys, the XPubs of the key signers, specifically making sure, hey, do you know this key holder? Do you know this key holder? Right. And that's kind of if you look through the video. Uh, you can see that in much detail, like how they think about that. And what you do is when you're done, uh, they register, you basically have your signing device sign the po- a hash of the policy, and you use that as a token going forward. If you ever want to verify again or do any interaction with the Ledger wallet, you present this like signed message from your own hardware wallet to let you know, hey, yeah, you're about to do an operation, but you've already previously approved this. So there's a lot of user experience pieces, especially on the signing device side, on how do you handle this. So I, I think it's it's more of a credit to Ledger being out on front on this as opposed to anyone like not stepping up to actually getting this done yet. Very, very cool. And I appreciate that background. So I guess maybe what's like the first, and you mentioned a couple, you've alluded to a number of like uh, simple use cases. What do you think is like the actual first real life uh, use case here and application? Yeah. So thinking maybe a step outside the insurance piece explicitly, um, I think this is going to, 
uh, decaying multisigs are going to be the first very straightforward use case. And what is a decaying multisig? So let's say you have a, a five hardware wallets. You have five signing devices. Um, you can have it operate as a five of five, but if the funds haven't been spent for, say, a year or maybe three months, whatever setting you want to do, right? But just think about this for a moment. Uh, every three months, you would drop one of the required key signers. So you can have a five of five multisig that becomes a four of five after three months. Oh, and then after cool. th another three months, it becomes a three of five. And then you can have it wait a year or two. Okay, two years pass and the money hasn't moved. It's now a two of five. All right, you wait another two years, now it's a one of five, right? So you all of a sudden change the boundary conditions in which you can lose money and make it smaller and smaller, which kind of bolsters custodial model, like self-custody. It empowers individuals to be able to have more confidence and not having their keys on exchanges. And I think that's all, that's a very low-hanging fruit that can have very positive results for everyone. You know what's interesting and just playing this out um, I, I, yeah. 100%. It's like, all right, here's a bonus plan, you know, and instead of me trusting, you know, you're trusting me that we're going to, um, uh, although it's locking up capital, which may not be the best use of this, but mm -hmm. let's say you have one Bitcoin for a developer and you're saying, hey, we have a four-year commitment here and we have, I don't know, me and let's say my co-founder. Uh, so it's three of three right now. And, uh, you know, after the, the three year period of time, or, or maybe there's a, like a waterfall aspect of like, uh, you know, every 10 million sats are, um, uh, goes to a one of, uh, three and he, the, he or she is able to, uh, spend or sign and, and move it to whatever wallet they want to use it. Um, that's just something that popped in my head is around capital, f uh, incentives around work that can be more transparent and gives more control to the user that is actually doing the work. I 100% agree. Escrow is like yeah. this general bucket that I've put some thought into and 100% agreed, uh, going to be a very big piece here. And I think th this is kind of like maybe one of my contrarian takes. I, I think there's so much innovation left to be done on layer one Bitcoin. And that's why I'm putting that my focus and attention at that layer. It's very contrarian opinion. And I think Miniscript is kind of a very conclusive thesis of some part of that has to be right because we're not using layer one to the full potential that we can at the moment. And for anyone who's working on any other project in Bitcoin on a higher layer, just start, I, I would encourage to start thinking about the fact that if we extend the programmability and utility of layer one, it's exponentially going to make layers two and three and so on stronger. And I think this is going to be a very big unlock over the next five years. Like I said, I think there's going to be, um, I saw someone say it on Twitter, I forgot who, that there's going to be a Cambrian explosion of new companies that are being built on, you know, having uh, more dynamic relationships for layer one Bitcoin than just single SIG or, or legacy multi-SIG. This is going to be very transformative for the entire development ecosystem and everyone's going to win from it. Uh Freaking, freaking, freaking love that. Now, let me ask you, and by the way, escrow is really interesting um, yeah. because you're removing, in the way you've been explaining the decaying multi-sig, which is now something I'm going to be adding to my vernacular, uh, you're removing the need for human trust and you're just saying, hey, here's what we've outlined and we're going to put it into uh, uh, Bitcoin and then execute based on time, whether that's the block height or the uh, or uh, the actual time or, you know, and then the, oh, we can go on the hash lock as well. But um, let me ask you a business and somewhat personal question. Like, how do you envision making money with your anchor watch? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, insurance company gathers premiums, right? They pay out claims. And then the net of that is profit. 
right? So uh, this is a very uh, direct relational understanding of like, how do we make money as an insurance company? Well, we sell insurance and we, you know, get a percentage of the premium of profit, right? So that, that, I, I don't, I, there's a, a lot of branches, maybe you want to take that conversation, but it's sure. a very uh, direct understanding of like the monetization. I love that. And no, and in and, and clear value for value monetization, such on these different use cases, like I look at you, what you're building, Rob, and it's similar to what Sam over at Hoseki, you guys are building an, a new platform within the Bitcoin space. He's innovating on more on the proof of assets or proof of reserves, where you guys are in the the next generation or the next step up from collaborative custody uh, or, and ownership, and really uh, empowering. Again, my cursory understanding right now, and this is probably not a good way of explaining it, but empowering the individual and businesses to do more together with Bitcoin. I would totally agree with that. I think. Um, you've ever seen that? Uh, it's an old, maybe it's a Far Side cartoon, but it's all of the, like all of these doctors wearing blindfolds and they're touching different parts of the elephant and they're trying to understand, like, <laughs> oh, it's a hose, like, oh, it's a like a it's a brush, right? Because like like the tail and the trunk and like Bitcoin, it 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 just it like it exists. Like Beyon says, it's like Bitcoin is and that's enough. And there's a lot of financial interactions that we're going to have to rethink with this new foundational money and things that like what Sam's doing at Hoseki and what we're working like, these are all things that uh, 20 years from now are just going to become the normal. Like it's going to be like, well, obviously you set it up that way, but you know, we're kind of forging forward right now to understand what are the best ways to construct and set this all up. And these are, you know, like with Sam, like with proving of ownership, what we're doing with insurance, these are, these are foundational building blocks of actually building a new financial system. And that, that's where I find, I get so excited and motivated, not just because of the cool technology stuff. And I love Bitcoin, I see this as as true shifts in understanding what it is to have possession of something, what it is to have programmable money. And this is the way I've been thinking about it is Bitcoin is programmable money. For the most part right now, we're using it for one plus one equals two or like hello world. But like there's a whole world out there that we can start interacting and playing with. And I view this as like the really exciting part. Bitcoin's only 14 years old. There's so much more to be done. And like we're so early still. Man. I had, this was such a blast. We, we were running up against time and we could go uh, uh, for another hour here. Uh, what I want to do is not only I'm, I'm serious about the the June uh, workshop, so that's happening. <laughs> Definitely want to do a second follow-up uh, podcast here uh, when you do come and visit. Uh, maybe February, March, or excuse me, yeah, January, February, and March. Maybe we'll do it in February, March. And I'm already given, uh, I just DM'd Matt uh, the contrarian take that you think there needs to be more innovation at the layer one. So let him expand on that and and debate with you on Citadel Dispatch. I love it. Um, but Rob, I'm going to put in the show notes, uh, not only your Twitter profile, the Anchor Watch Twitter profile, and your amazing tweet thread, but is there anything else you want to leave uh, our audience with? No, this has been a great uh great conversation, Rod. Always enjoy talking to you. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me, my email is rob at anchorwatch.com. If you're interested in learning more about um, the wallet we're building, we're our, 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 we're calling it Trident Wallet. That's going to be having a lot of this native stuff out of the box with uh, decaying multi-sigs, uh, all of the mini script support with kind of a little bit of a, an opportunity for you to also kind of mess around with your own test scripts and kind of play around on testnet. Uh, that'll all be supported. Uh, go to anchorwatch.com, drop in your email and we'll... Uh, let you know when we're ready to start doing uh, some testing. 
Rob, thank you so much for spending time with us. This was an absolute honor, man. Pleasure being on. Cheers. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rob as much as I did. The way Rob and the Anchor Watch team are leveraging the power of Miniscript to innovate on layer one of Bitcoin and offer peace of mind to Bitcoiners everywhere is truly impressive. If you're enjoying the pod and want to automatically stay up to date, please like and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app and make sure auto download is on. This would also mean the world to me. Lastly, come visit us in Nashville at Bitcoin Park. The Bitcoin community here in Nashville goes stronger by the day. We hinted at a number of events, pop-ups, workshops, meetups, and even launched Nashville devs here at the park. And 2023 is just around the corner, so stay tuned for more info on upcoming events. If you want to be the first to know, join our meetup page at bitcoinpark.co and check the show notes for this episode for a link to the Bitcoin Park Discord server, now with over 200 members, so that you can stay connected with us. Until next time.